Hello, and welcome to What Really Matters Interviews, in which adventurers, leaders, and other extraordinary people reveal the essence of what really matters in life, business, and beyond. So have you ever found yourself overwhelmed at work, wondering why you're putting in so many hours, and for what? Maybe you've reached a nice level of success, but you still feel empty. Or you're having a midlife crisis of sorts and thinking, there's got to be more to life than this. And then maybe you get the thought, wouldn't it be awesome to just chuck it all, quit the job, sell the house and all the other stuff, and go see the world? That's exactly what today's guest did. In this podcast, I'm interviewing Sarah and Daniel Peterson from Vancouver, Canada. They followed up on that dream, and they're doing it. So far, they've traveled 125,000 miles, visited 61 countries, and are about to depart for the most challenging part of this ride yet. We could do an interview about where they've been and what they've seen, but you can see all of that on their blog at www.worldwideride.ca. What I want to do instead is pull back the curtain and learn more about them. Who is this couple that was able to turn their dream into the adventure of a lifetime? How did they do it? Who did they have to become to do it? What were the challenges? What steps did they take? What have they learned? What are the day-to-day -day challenges of living on a motorcycle? What's it like being with your spouse 24-7 and dealing with situations that make a daily spat in the kitchen look like child's play? How have they grown, both individually and as a couple? And with all this hard-earned wisdom they've gained, what do they think really matters most? Listen up if you want to learn the answers to these and other questions. And learn how you, too, can turn your dream from wishful thinking into a life-defining event. Let's get started. This is Sarah and Daniel Peterson. They are the world travelers on the BMWs. And my first question for you guys is about the dream and getting started. So maybe you can talk about how you got started, what the spark was, and then from there, like, how did you keep moving forward with that and actually make it happen? All right, Sarah, lead us off. So we uh, first got the bug about traveling when we met in um, 1994, and uh, we discussed how our future would unfold, and we decided that our big, big dream would be to just travel the world. Uh, actually, how we were going to do that, we didn't really have any idea, and that came much later. It was about uh, 2009 when uh, we, we really narrowed it down to the motorcycle, uh, and that came after we had gone to hear several people who had traveled the world on their own motorcycles. And we just listened to their stories, their adventures about the people they had met, the places they had gone. And the hook was in. That was the end. It was going to be by motorcycle. It just had done. <laughs> like there was no question in your minds. That... There was no question at that point, no. Dan, you want to add to that? Yeah, so... Um... You know, taking a step back, when first when Sarah and I first met, we, um, you know, we I think unlike a lot of other people had very um, uh, tough talks in the beginning about our relationship and and how we saw it unfolding as we move forward. Um, you know, we one of the discussions that we had early on was about children, and we knew right from the get go that children weren't weren't in our future. And so, because that for most people in in a you know in a marriage is an all encompassing task to take on that becomes a priority, and that wasn't going to be a focus for us. We had to ask ourselves, well, what else was there? Um, 
were we just gonna you know pursue these careers and continue to you know amass wealth and and you know material items or were we going to do something very different with our lives and and sarah and i both came up um because it was both a passion of ours that we wanted to see the world and and its people and uh, and that's how it really started to sort of get get rolling in our minds and get that dream sort of cooking and uh, and bubbling away in the beginning so not to dig into this too deep but where do you think you got that desire versus kind of going the standard route some you know not every it's not too many people that actually like you know what I don't want to keep up with the Joneses. Just don't even want to go down that treadmill. Instead, why don't we just ride around the world for a few years on motorcycles? <laughs> <laughs> well, I know, I know for, I know for myself, it was, it was a desire to do something different. Um, you know, I, I just, I, I didn't want to lead a normal quotes unquote normal life. I wanted to do something that was unique and special to me. Um, you know, it, it may seem weird and, and strange to somebody else, but for myself, it was just about doing something out of the ordinary and, and knowing that you only really got one chance to do it. And so you needed to put things in place to, to uh, make that dream a reality. Sarah, how about you? Something that just like, you know what? No, I'm not doing the Joneses thing. I don't need a I... 2.2 cars and a dog and, you know, and all that stuff. I, in my upbringing, I had professional parents, but we, we never lived that living up to the Joneses lifestyle. We never had a condo at Whistler and, uh, you know, fancy cars. We had family vacations and we had time spent together and my parents are big, big travelers. And so from a very young age, we were exposed to that. My parents would go in the 60s to Mexico for a month and leave us four alone with the babysitter. And that was like, not fair. So we wanted to go. Uh, and we really got the travel bug uh, as very small children. And we uh, were taught to uh, appreciate the differences um, in people and cultures and to embrace uh, that adventure. Okay, so fast forward now, the hook is set. Um, how do you turn it into a reality? Because that's another whole step. Well, I think the, the first step is to decide you're going to do it. Then you got to tell everybody you know, because once you tell everybody you know, you really got to do it and, and stick to your plan. Um, I did that at about uh, a thousand days from our departure. I told everybody I knew I was going to go. I had an app that counted down the days. And every day, about 20 people would ask me, how many days is it today? And so uh, it really built up a lot of excitement and uh, you sort of said to yourself, I really got to do it now. Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, and just to add to what Sarah said there, which is, is great advice. I mean, it's envisioning it and then communicating that with the people around you to reinforce and reinstill that idea um, to move forward. But it's to just take the first step once the dream is envisioned. I think that a lot of people get caught in the dreaming process and they never take just that initial step because, of course, that initial step takes commitment. And that commitment can be a very scary thing. Um, but just taking literally the first step is, is the most powerful thing a person can do. And then the next day you take one more step and that's how it builds. And then the moment builds and pretty soon it has a life of its own. And Absolutely. You know, I think about our, our dream, uh, you know, in this worldwide ride that we're on. 
uh, it, it quite literally has a life of its own now. You know, it, it's almost like a separate entity in a way. Um, the way that, that people, um, you know, strangers react to us um, and the way we almost compartmentalize this part of our life because it is, it is, um, you know, it, it's not us um, all encompassing. It is a part of our life. It is a period of our life that we've embraced and, and are enjoying. And we know that it won't be forever. We'll, we'll embark on another dream and another adventure, which we already have a little bit instilled in our minds and it hasn't quite crystallized yet, but it, it, it's there and it's fostering. So you just started doing it. You got on your bikes and like, how did that, <laughs> like day zero hits, right? Well, we, didn't, we, we didn't just get on our bikes. We, uh, we bought bikes and we did some test rides and we, you know, packed some luggage and we repacked a hundred times. And then we, uh, we started selling off everything we owned, uh, including our house and our cars and our bicycles and everything, skis and everything. And then you're left with your bike and your luggage and nowhere to live. So you got to go somewhere. And, and Doug, in the beginning, it's scary because, of course, a dream and reality, uh, uh, you know, are very different things. And, but you take that next first step. And once you take that next first step, that, that initial fear starts to fall away. And, um, and, you, and then you, you become excited again and you embrace the adventure. And people say, well, how can you go for, you know, a year? So I'm not going for a year. I'm just going tomorrow. And then the next day after that, I'm just going tomorrow. So it's very easy when you just go one day at a time. Break it down in small steps. <laughs> okay. So now you're on your bikes, you're going. Um, what did you find the day-to-day -day reality was like? As you started settling into the ride, maybe the nervous energy drops off and you're, you start finding your rhythm. What is that like? Take us well, through a day or well, a week. You, what you find in the beginning is you are so green and you make all kinds of silly little mistakes and you, of course, have far too much stuff packed with you and, and um, you know, being very A-type personalities where you have all the little eventualities covered off, you know, to the nth degree. But then you start to relax and you start to get in a rhythm. And what you find is you just start living life. The only difference is, is that you're living life, right, moving forward each day or not necessarily each day. It may be every week or, you know, there's been places where we've stopped for a month at, at, a, at a time. Um, but it, you really fall into a rhythm of life. Sarah? And, and you, you know, people say, well, you know, what about where do you get your dental floss? I said, well, you know, people in the world everywhere use dental floss. And so maybe it's not the brand you want to use, but everything that you possibly could want or need you usually can buy it if you run out somewhere and so you don't need to take you know all your contact lens solution with you and those things that are people stress out about um so those little small things of the day-to-day -day, you don't need to worry about them because they just happen um and then the the routine of of uh, getting up and going somewhere you you just get to this fine old machine like we can get break camp and get everything packed up and be on the road and in uh it gets shorter and shorter actually every time we do it so that brings up another question where do you stay um do you find hotels guest houses pensions are you camping are you like 
at times. We, like, we do it all. <laughs> we literally do it all. And, and, and here is the criteria for the mode of, of accommodation. Um, the, the accommodation is really based on where we're at at the particular time. And, and a perfect example is the Solida Uni, you know, in Bolivia, you have this incredible uh, salt lake, salt plains. And if you're there during the dry season, it is the most spectacular place on earth to go literally out in the middle of the vast nothingness and camp. And if you can't camp, then you're not able to stay in this incredible place and have this amazing experience. But then of course, when we're downtown Santiago, well then we're probably going to seek out a, you know, a hotel or a hostel, or we've been very blessed to be uh, invited to many, many private homes, um, you know, with the, the connections that Sarah has made through her avid online presence. We have been, you know, just blessed to the nth degree with people seeing our route and, and inviting us along the way, which has just been spectacular. And we also have a couple of other criteria. So we are fair weather campers. Uh, uh, you know, if it's really raining and pouring and nasty, if we don't have to camp, we won't. Uh, so we're not we're not too hardcore. We're softcore. We're softcore. Yeah. The other thing too is we all we laugh about when we're in, uh, in you know especially in South America where it's fairly cheap to get accommodation that it's almost not worth camping especially when it can be very very windy. Uh, but we have criteria and the most important criteria on the top of the list was do they have good parking, and then underneath that was is it clean, and then underneath that was uh, do they have Wi-Fi. So we're 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 not uh, bikes are the most important. So park good parking means protected parking, right? Some place where you don't have to worry about your bikes getting broken into and yeah, vandalized. We're we're less and less paranoid about the bikes. We certainly we don't we don't tend to just keep them out on the street if it's possible. You know, it's really more of a thing of convenience now more than anything else. Um, in the in the beginning, mm -hmm. oh, absolutely, and it and it's quite funny to to remember the stories about hotel managers running out and seeing the bikes and insisting they be in the lobby of the hotel. You know, when there was quite clearly no issues with theft or crime in their little town or what have you, but, you know, they took it upon themselves to be the protectorate of the, the mighty machines. So, yeah, it's quite, quite, quite comical. Um, that does bring up a question, though, of the day-to-day -day expenses of traveling. Um, if you broke it down into a cost per day, per person, or, you know, as a group, um, you know, as a couple... I'll what do you think it costs you to be on the road for? Yeah, so, you're the finance guy, Dan. So, yeah, Dan. you know, in the for the first year, I actually tracked it to the penny. Um, this is just who I am as a person. You know, I've been very budget-orientated my entire life, actually. And um, and so we do have a number. Here's the problem with, with relaying the number, um, is that it is so individual. What What – how Sarah and I live our lifestyles, what we eat, what we drink, what we do, you know, as far as entertainment, how we operate the motorcycles, just doesn't translate to another individual. And, and how I know this is that I've cross-compared notes with, with literally a dozen or more people who have done the same thing. So there is a ballpark figure that certainly somebody could you know, expect to fall, fall into a range, but our number is certainly not somebody else's number. And I wouldn't want ever anybody to think, well, this is what can be done. 
because it, it, it just, it's not fair. It's just not a fair number. Now, that being said, I will say our first, our number for our entire first year, which included all of our shipping, repairs, absolutely everything, donations that we made along the way to people that we felt, you know, needed funds or what have you, was just under $100 per day total for both of us. Okay. Um, wow. But that also included some spectacular sightseeing trips. Um, you know, uh, it also included um, shipping of the motorcycles again, you know, which was quite expensive. Um, so, and we know people who have done it for far, far less, far less. I know we know people who have traveled for $25 a day, uh, literally with the motorcycle. And then we know people who have done it for far more, <laughs> of course. So. <laughs> okay. Um what else in the day-to-day driving is in the riding would people want to know or would you want people to know? Um, I think in the day-to-day, there's um, we've been blessed with fantastic weather. I would tell you that. We did some planning around the weather, so we, we were you know uh, very, very lucky. I think in the first uh, three years, we had about 15 days of terrible rain that we had to ride in, so we're very lucky. So on the day-to-day, if it's a beautiful day, um, you can just uh, relax and enjoy. Stop where you want. Go where you feel like going. Take a turn here because that road looks good. Um, but we have a general idea of where we're going at the end of the day. Um, but exactly how we get there is a little bit open to uh, what's going on that day. Sarah, Sarah always has an overview plan of the sites um, in each um, area that we roll through that, you know, that are important for us to see. Do we generally get to all of them? Well, not all of them, but we see a lot of them. And they, they tend to revolve around historical type items, um, you know, uh, place of it, uh, places of interest or historical places where, you know, um, important events took place, that type of thing. We're trying to experience countries as we go through, um, not in, in the most touristic sense, but in a cultural sense so that we get to understand the country and the history so that we can relate to the people and, and the way that they're living now. Um, so as we roll through, we have this general guideline. We, of course, have an overview of where we're headed for the particular day. But like Sarah said, um, we are very open to um, the twists and turns. You know, does that road look great? Well, we turn right instead of left. Have you noticed um, when you shift through countries, as you go from one country to the next, have you found that your daily routine sort of shifts a bit to match the country and the, um, I don't know, the energy or the vibe or the whatever it is of the new culture? I think or that does the routine stay the same pretty much. I think the routine stays pretty much the same. Um, however, it does a little bit depend on the terrain. So if you're going to be sort of off-road and more camping, you have to be a lot more prepared and organized than if you're going to be going into big cities where it doesn't matter whether you have groceries or not or what time of day you arrive. Um, and so that does change the routine a little bit. But in general, our when we get up, what we do, how we plan our day, when we stop is kind of generally what we've, what we've decided as works for us. Yeah, and I would okay. say maybe on the energy level, there is a, there is definitely um, some differences between the countries. I mean, I can recall, you know, being in Brazil and just how gregarious the people 
were in their, their personalities. And, you know, we found ourselves engaging with other people much more than we did, for example, in, um, you know, in Bolivia, where the people can be quite, not cold, but guarded, um, and maybe a touch suspicious of foreigners, especially on large motorcycles rolling through their villages. Um, you know, we try to be respectful and what have you, but you are, you are, you are quieter. You're not as open to engaging people just, and that's based on the energy of the people you're encountering. Right. Okay. So now let's move into what's it really like adventure riding with your partner? (laughs) (laughs) My own, one reason I ask this is I know that when I've been on adventure rides with somebody, it can be intense. You're together, you're dependent upon each other, and um, things get amplified, so to speak. Oh, that, you know what? That <laughs> is a perfect word, amplified. So, you know, things that may seem so trivial can, can spark a, a festering, you know, uh, <laughs> wound of sorts. And, and Sarah and I, we have uh, we become so aware of this. Um, I would say particularly in the last two years, um, and it's actually brought us a lot closer together. We now know um, the triggers for each other much more intimately than we'd ever did before. And for example, you know, Sarah is a very small woman and she rides a very large motorcycle and she has, um, you know, graciously participated in some amazing off-road terrain. Um, places that, you know, my, my buddies at home on their motocross bikes would have difficult times riding. And so that is very stressful for this young lady. And so I have to be aware <laughs> that when she's in these stressful situations, that of course, you know, a, a, an offhand comment that I think might be, uh, you know, a joke is no longer a joke to her. I would say too that um, I think when you spend this much time with someone in stressful situations, you um, you learn to just let something slide. Um, and so when I have a small moment of a mental breakdown and may use some foul language, he would ju- just smile now and say, it's going to be okay and, and go on instead of instead of feeding into that and getting into an argument. Um, And so uh, I think that that give and take has really improved and really made things a lot easier. Yeah, I would agree. Sort of doing the Aikido thing and letting it just go on by. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we've really really embraced as a couple that stressful moments, they they too shall pass, right? Mm -hmm. Everything, no matter what it is in life, will pass at some point. And so, you know, you, you have to grin and bear it sometimes. You have to endure. Um, and, you have and to move, yell and sometimes. Along. And sometimes you just need to yell. <laughs> Can you give us an example of one of these learning experiences? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. One, the one that was earlier on was Sarah and I were doing a river crossing in, um, in Costa Rica. And it was a very hot day, uh, wow. mid-40s. Mid um, well, I want to say the audience, too. Uh, that that's centigrade. Yeah. Mid forties in the Celsius or the Fahrenheit is probably in the one tens. Yeah. So 15. full, full riding gear, very high humidity, um, some tough off-road conditions to begin with. And then I scoot across a river 
which wasn't catastrophic by any means, but it had intimidated Sarah, right, to cross. And so she wanted me to come back and ride the bike across the river. Well, I just wanted her to ride. And at that point in our relationship and in the, in the journey that we were embarking on, I think we hadn't reached a, a level of maturity for both of us to recognize that this was a huge flashpoint. And of course, something that should have been very benign blew up into a massive, massive issue where we fast forward to Morocco two years later, okay, in much tougher conditions, much, much tougher conditions, you know, uh, riverbeds that are washed out. We, we managed over an entire day around five kilometers per hour, okay, that's how tough the riding was, <laughs> over an eight-hour day. Um, and, and you know what? It, it all went swimmingly. And there was no blow-ups and, uh, you know, in intensely stressful situation. Um, and it just, it stems from the maturity and the recognition that, you know, this too shall pass. And that um, being probably kinder and gentler on one another in those situations resolves much more than being harsh and critical. So what have you learned about each other? Sarah, do you want to add something there? Um, no, I, I just, I would highly agree that, um, and also I think what Dan's learned about me is that sometimes when you lose your confidence in a very stressful and difficult situation, just telling me to do it is not going to fix the situation um, <laughs> and probably going to make it worse. So, you know, going back to uh, several years ago, that might have been the way it would have worked. It's like just yelling, just ride your bike. Uh, whereas now, I think if he, you know, he'll now realizes that just, you know, riding my bike over a difficult rock crossing or something to get it to the other side, I calm down. I get some more confidence back and keep riding um, is a much better approach. <laughs> Agreed. Okay. Less hammer, <laughs> less hammer. <laughs> more chill factor. Mm -hmm. um, what else have you learned about each other in this ride that you may not have learned about each other? You know, if you were doing the 2.2, cars and the dogs and you know all that stuff two cars 2.2 kids i guess on a dog well i think that we spend in the first 16 years of our marriage we spent um you know evenings together i worked a very long hours and i was uh, working away at night several times a week and so in our whole relationship uh, of 18 years before that, we had never actually been together 24-7 for more than, you know, your average two-week holiday. So it was kind of surprising when we went away and we were together 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, except for the time on the bike, that actually we got along pretty well. I think we had, uh, you know, those blowout screaming fights that married people have um, far fewer, not that we had that many in the first place, but you know, maybe once or twice every year that would happen when we're on the road. Um, and so I was kind of surprised that we would argue less, actually. Hmm. Dan, yeah. you want to add to that? Well, what I'll add, the, the thing that I've, I've learned or, or experienced, I guess, fr from Sarah, that I didn't know the depth of prior to going on this adventure and being so intimately involved with Sarah for such long periods of time is how much she has my back. Like, we all like to think that our spouse, you know, is there for us and is there to be nurturing and all this kind of stuff. 
But in these types of um, adventures where you are so dependent on the other person, if that person isn't fully committed to being there for you without being asked, you know, without being prompted, you get to find that out pretty fast because what happens is then one person tends to start doing much more and carrying the load much more than the other. Remember, there's lots of days where we're setting up camp and breaking it down and we're cooking meals and we're working on bikes and we're, you know, I mean, there's, it's, it's never ending really. I mean, people tend to think of this as sort of a holiday that you just sort of lollygag about. And in actual fact, it's a lot of work. And if that person doesn't share that load and doesn't have the other individuals back, oh, it would get worn out pretty fast, pretty fast. Mm. Okay. Anything you want to add on the relationship front? Insights? Um... Um, I think that um, as people who had been married for 16 years and we set out, it's a totally different ball of wax than a lot of the couples we meet who are traveling around for for a year or so on their motorcycles it's often young couples or boyfriend girlfriends that haven't been together that long so i think that probably is quite a bit more challenging uh, than traveling with someone that you already know very very well mm-hmm. and uh, we don't we don't need to speak we have a vulcan mind meld so we don't <laughs> um I would be curious just sort of real briefly when you see those other couples that have only been at it for a year or so, what do you see in them? What looks different? Are they doing a lot more of the preliminary at each other throats kind of stuff? I'm not so much that, but I think they just don't know each other well enough to, um, to have that depth. I think that they're on a holiday. Yeah. It's almost, Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and I would say that a lot of the folks that we come across, because it's primarily the, the, the guy's dream. So what, what's happened is the guy has had this adventure bug bite him, and he's been on ADV Rider, and he's been, you know, bitten by this bug to ride his adventure motorcycle somewhere, or maybe it's a street motorcycle. And then the gal sort of, tags along generally and and there's nothing wrong with that you know she wants to experience it with him as well but it's generally his primary dream or his primary adventure we see very few couples where there's this 50 50 partnership in the in the dream you know in in the adventure um interesting yeah so and i would say that's the difference you know and then because of that aspect i think that maybe the gal is on in much more of a holiday mode and and that's i mean that's what we've observed anyway i think sarah would agree and also i think that um the couples we've met who are on their own bikes for the most part they're slightly older and married people yeah um the couples we've met uh, that are younger are almost exclusively uh, the man is driving the bike and the woman is pillion. Huh, okay. Pillion, by the way, means riding on the back right. or two up. Yeah, just for those listening who may not know <laughs> the motorcycle terminology. Sorry. <laughs> okay, so let's move on to another thing. You're out there in the world now. You've been through North, Central, and South America. You've been through Europe, of course. You've done parts of Africa? Just Morocco. Just okay, Morocco. Morocco. So, but you've seen a lot of the world now. 
the perception that we have here, like our country currently is kind of going to this xenophobic state and putting up walls and, you know, everybody out there is like the boogeyman and bad and evil and all of that. What's the reality that you see and that you've experienced as you're riding through the world? So we left uh, Canada and we went north first, but then when we went south to the United States, it was very interesting. Everyone every day asks you, where are you from? Where are you going? Uh, and as you got closer and closer to the Mexican border, the uh, uh, level of anxiety of the people talking to us about how we were for sure going to get kidnapped, robbed, or probably murdered because there's a drug war in Mexico, it got more and more intense as we got closer to the, to the U.S. border, including the border guards uh, <laughs> when we crossed at Eagle Pass. Um, but, you know, when we got to Mexico, nothing but kindness, uh, really helpful, lovely people. Uh, and uh, people ask us all the time, you know, where's the most dangerous? Where were you the most scared? Was there any place you were scared for your life uh, in all these 61 countries you've been? And um, we always say the scariest place we were was Houston, Texas. <laughs> Talk about course, that briefly. And of course, it's a, it's a touch tongue-in-cheek. And, you know, part of it has to do with the cell phone driving that we experience there, which can be, of course, very dangerous for us when we're on our motorcycles. But the reality is almost exactly the opposite of what we are experiencing in the media in the West here. We, um, you know, another beautiful example is we went to Albania this past year, rode through some very remote regions in Albania and uh, got stuck in a village uh, for a period of time. And the kindness that we were shown by complete strangers that had nothing, absolutely nothing, okay, was uh, nothing short of extraordinary and, and is something that you would never experience here. Uh, or it would be incredibly rare to experience it here in North America. Um, so, of course, the world has problems. There's no de denying that there isn't problems in this world. Um, but those problems are being extrapolated to entire populations of people. And I think that that is the most damaging thing that we could possibly do. Because then it, what it does is it pits us against them. And it's not us against them. It's a few bad people, okay, that are stirring trouble up really to, to control those populations of people. And it's those individuals that we should be worried about and not the populations of those countries. It's like the old, uh, it's like the old story in the, in the storybooks about the traveler that's traveling by foot from one village to the next. And when he gets to the village, they say, where did you come from? Oh, just over the hill. He goes, Oh, and you weren't killed by those people. They're horrible. And then where are you going tomorrow? I'm going over that hill. Oh, you can't go there. You're going to get killed. It's the same as it's been in, in the old fairy tales. And it uh, couldn't be more wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, curious about what some of your favorite countries were and why. Mm -hmm. And Daniel, I have different answers to this question. You go ahead, sir. <laughs> Well, I think we, there's so many fast, fabulous places in the world, but I think if you take overall 
Um, I really loved Brazil. Brazil has got so many different uh, ge geographic areas. Uh, the people are the most outgoing, friendly, and gregarious people on the planet. They do not care that you do not speak Portuguese. They, uh, they embrace you uh, every day in the three months we were there. We had an amazing experience with someone who's Brazilian. Uh, and so I really, really loved it. Um, I think the second choice for me would probably be Iceland because it's, it's so stunningly spectacular. Mm -hmm. I would say um, it's very difficult for me to choose because in truth, um, every place uh, I've loved for one reason or another, um, very special places though would be, uh, for me, would be Colombia. Um, I thought Colombia, because of the preconceived notions that we have built up in our minds from movies and TVs and news reports and what have you, um, in getting there and having that totally dispelled and just to have people who are well, uh, warm and welcoming and, you know, amazing, amazing motorcycling was incredible. I have to agree with Sarah with her other choices. Of course, um, uh, Brazil is, I mean, geographically, the diversity just in that alone is spectacular. The people are stunning. And then, yes, I mean, of course, Iceland and, and Northern Europe and then all the way down. I mean, of course, Italy and on and on and on. You could, you could pick a thousand places, but um, um, th those, those first couple are certainly rare and special. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now that you've done all of this traveling and you've had some time to spend some intense, you know, 24-7 time with each other over a number of years and tens of thousands of kilometers or miles either way. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, I think you've ridden around the planet equivalent of like five or six times. Um, <laughs> what have you learned? What really matters to you now? How are you different than you were before you started the ride? What, um, what wisdom have you gained? And I would come back to that question, what really matters to you now going forward? And how, what would you tell people? So for me, I have had a huge personality change. I used to be, I still am a little bit type A, but I used to be an extremely high, strong type A, complete perfectionist, um, and I had a really difficult time with change and things not going exactly as I planned them. And that's completely gone out the window now. Um, I'm still a little bit type A, but in a, in a more controlled manner. Um, and I, I so appreciate just the tiny things in life now. Uh, if, some, if, you, if you're in a place in the hot, and there's hot water and really nice pressure in the shower, we comment, oh my God, isn't this awesome? This shower is the best shower ever. <laughs> And just small things like that, you know, uh, little tiny things of life. Oh, this bread is freshly baked. It's fantastic. The little things are important. The, the people we have met who, who have just gone out of their way to do crazy, crazy amounts of things for us, uh, put us up in their homes, take us places, do things for us, drive across the country. Uh, it's made our lives really, really easy in countries where we didn't speak the language. Um, those little connections that turn into these fabulous friendships, those are the, those, that's the most important thing. Um, I would say our, our little saying, our little slogan, less stuff, more living, 
um, really sums it up for me. Um, I wasn't an ultra materialistic person um, to begin with, but I certainly um, was influenced primarily because of my ego more than anything else um, in wanting certain things in my life. And there's no doubt now that the importance of material things just has really diminished um, in you know, it's just no longer a factor in my life. And it's not that, uh, you know, I think nice things aren't, aren't important for, for, you know, the function of a person's life. It's just that the materialism that we experience in North America for the sake of just consuming all of that has, has just become silly. Absolutely silly. Hmm. Okay. Any other words of advice, wisdom gained from the road? I think for me, it's that, uh, like we were talking about before, is people are really so much more similar than they are different. Mm. And if we could just realize that, we'd probably just get along. Um, there's, uh, you really see it in children the most. Small children are exactly the same everywhere. They do the same crazy little things as, your, as our nieces and nephews would do here. Um, they do it in a different language, but they behave exactly the same. Um, and so we're just so much more alike. Yeah, I would reiterate that as well. You know, I think we need to, or, or we notice that if we focus on our, our, instead of our differences, but on our commonalities, then, then that's where our strength lies. And, and, and we didn't do that before, but now we do. And so when we meet new people, it's, it's almost like we've known them forever because what, what do we do? We focus in on our, our points of, of, of interest and, our, our, and, our, and that, that's actually one of the beautiful things about the motorcycle because you do have this instant bond, this instant um, brotherhood, you know, that, that joins us. And then with that little planting of the seed, the relationship can grow from there. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe talk briefly about to the why motorcycle versus something else. I mean, my own experience, you're exposed to the elements. You're totally there. There's sort of a vulnerability and a um, immersion in your environment that just doesn't exist any other way. It's funny. We, the very first time we experienced this was one of the first times we went on a road trip on the bikes and we went down to Washington state. Actually, I was having my custom seat done there, but uh, we were staying at a small little hotel and it was raining. It wasn't very nice. Typical Pacific Northwest. We arrive and we're on motorcycles and the owner of the hotel, he runs out. And he's like, Oh, come, come in right now and get dry. I'll give you coffee. You've come on your motorcycle. How, how incredible here, park them right here beside the front door. So I think we get treated, <laughs> we get treated special when you come in your motorcycle, which is quite nice. Um, but also, you're right. You do experience everything, the good and the bad. You experience uh, the dead dogs on the side of the road that smell, and you also smell the flowers and the honey. Um, and so it's, it's, uh, it's part of the whole package to the sights and smells and sounds as well. I think you missed that mm -hmm. in the car. Yeah, and, and you know, we've, we've talked about this many times about how the motorcycle is being in the movie versus being a car which is watching the movie. Um, you know, Ooh, I, like I, 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 I very often can tell 
that the temperature has changed before the thermostat, which is, you know, electronic on my get and my, my ga uh, dash gauge on my dash changes. So, you know, we, we become that in tune with the elements of, of the, of our natural surroundings. Um, and of course that's good and bad because we don't have air conditioning. So we feel the full brunt of the heat or the cold or, or everything, but that's what is the, uh, those are the alive moments. And to wall yourself off from that, I think you really lose a lot. And then, of course, as Sarah spoke to, all of the human dynamics that revolve around the vulnerability of the motorcycle, um, the pluses far outweigh any of the negative. You know, all, people only focus on the danger and, the, you know, the, the exposure that we put ourselves through. Well, that exposure is actually the vulnerability that leads to these strong relationships. And uh, without that, the, the journey would be completely different. In fact, I'm not sure it would have near the purpose and meaning that we, we now attribute it to. So. Mm -hmm. Okay. Moving on to the next one. Um, advice to others. Somebody's got this dream. They've been hooked or they're close to being hooked and that hook might get set. Um, tips on going forward. What do they do with that? Let's say they want to proceed. What are like the next action steps they should do to actually turn the dream into a reality? Well, you could do exactly what we did was uh, get your motorcycle license first uh, <laughs> and, uh, and buy a bike, do some short trips to make sure that, that it's really what you want to do, maybe a week or two weeks. Really get your gear sorted out so that you, you can feel comfortable. Um, I think the where to go thing, uh, if you're in the Americas, I think that's, th that's the easiest place to go on a, a adventure like this. It's very easy to travel through North Central and South America as far as the paperwork and those kinds of things. And so it's, it's sort of a, a cakewalk. Um, the riding can be as easy or as difficult as you like, depending on what kind of train you want. If you wanted to go all the way from top to bottom, you could pretty much do it almost exclusively on pavement, except for very short periods of good gravel road. Um, or if you wanted to go uh, hardcore, you can do that. So it, you can be in whatever environment you like, but I think it would be best to start here as opposed to say going to Africa. Mm -hmm. and, and I would keep it very simple. And my advice would be literally to do something every day to move yourself forward to, to the actual reality of doing the trip. Um, you know, and, and that would maybe start with a simple act of, of, of writing down a date, you know, a, a go date. And then the next day would be, you know, doing half an hour of research, on, on whatever it may be, whatever aspect of the trip, but literally every day doing one thing. Um, and and those, those little one things add up very quickly and the progress starts to take hold. And, and like we talked about earlier here is that it takes on a life of its own and the momentum then starts to build. Um, just pondering and nasal gaving and dreaming is very nice to sort of set, um, you know, a grand... Uh, vision in place, but until a person actually starts to take steps, they don't have to be grand steps, but they need to be small steps every day. That's when you start moving forward. Mm -hmm. 
One of the other things that we did as well when we were planning the trip uh, would have been in sort of 2010-11 is we started hosting riders that were um, driving from north to south to south to north. uh, And we contacted these people either on Horizons Unlimited, which is a a blog site, or on ADB Rider. Um, And in general, we uh, contacted couples uh, who we then hosted when we had a house Uh, We put them up, we fed them, we took them around, we gave them advice. But the most important thing is we gleaned jewels from them about what it was really like to be on the road um, firsthand. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. and it, it, it fed our dream. Um, You know, it, 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 it kept us energized by the stories that they relate to us and the energy of their trips. And what's interesting is we have then, seen all of these people in their home countries, you know, on our, on our adventure. So we've been to Germany to meet one couple into France and, and many other places. So. Hmm. Love it. Okay. So if people want to find out more information about your ride, I know that um, you have several sites up and I'll include links to that somewhere, but maybe you can also give us that. I can give you our I can give you our personal yeah, blog site. Yeah, our blog is worldwideride.ca because we're Canadian. A. 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 <laughs> we also have um, our what we call uh, ride reports, uh, and those are on those two sites I mentioned before. One is on Horizons Unlimited, and the other one is on ADV Rider. How would they find them on there? Is there can they do a search for... Both of them will be listed on the top, on the front page. There'll be, I think on ADV Rider, it's called Epic Rides. Um, and uh, if you link on there, ours will be uh, listed as well. And our ride report is called Finding Freedom. That's on adventurerider.com. That's A-D-V-R-I-D-E-R.com. Correct. Okay. And um, Awesome. Wish you guys lots of luck on your next adventure, and I'm looking forward to tracking that. I do want to add this, too. They, you guys have done such an incredible job of documenting your trip. I have never seen so many photos on a ride report. It's like <laughs> off the charts. <laughs> At the end of the day, you know, other than the relationships, Doug, you have the photos, right? <laughs> and without the photo, you weren't there. And That's also, right. it's uh, Daniel's passion and hobby is photography. So it comes out, I think, in the photos. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's great. To learn more about Daniel and Sarah's motorcycle adventure, to ask them questions, or just to see a lot of great pictures from all over the world, visit their website at www.worldwideride.ca. And if you want to learn more about what really matters in life, business, and beyond, you can listen to more interviews with adventurers, thought leaders, and other extraordinary people at www.whatreallymattersinterviews.com. Thanks for joining me.